today, rejoining our studies in the Gospel of Luke. We're picking up where we left off uh, back in the end of spring before summer in Luke chapter 13. Uh, beginning to read today in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, and we will look through verse 30. If you have an ESV, you can find that most likely on page 873. Now, because it's been a while since we have been together in the Gospel of Luke, this is now our third year. We're beginning our third year studying uh, this, uh, this magisterial gospel. Uh, so much teaching and so much here for us to consider. Uh, it may be helpful to remember where we were, and in fact, we can do that quickly because verse 22, our opening verse, gives us a pretty good summary of exactly where we are. It says, He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, the vast majority of Luke really is a travelogue. It's a story of Jesus and his journey to Jerusalem. It first shows up back in chapter 9, where it says that Jesus there set his face toward Jerusalem. It's also the same chapter where Jesus first predicts or prophesies that he is going to go to Jerusalem, not, uh, not simply to see the sights as many travelers would, not simply to worship, but to lay down his life for his sheep. And almost everywhere... Uh, until Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, that Luke points out that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, we see other, uh, other ties with Jesus going up to lay down his life. Lord willing, next week we will come as Jesus is warned to get out of where he is because Herod wants to seek his life, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm going up to Jerusalem because it cannot be that a prophet will die, will perish apart from that city. We see it again. Uh, this is the trajectory of most of the gospel. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, and as he goes, he teaches those who come, and he teaches them the gospel, and he teaches them the truth of salvation, and that's what we're going to see tonight. Uh, very uh, salvation-centered passage. We can't ignore it. We can't get around it. And I will warn you also, there are some hard truths in this passage. It's not going to be a light and a difficult, or a light and an easy passage, and it likely won't be a light and an easy sermon. But uh, there, is, there is spiritual truth here for God's people if we will yet receive it. So before we read this passage together, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22, reading to verse 30, please join me again in prayer, uh, seeking God's blessing on our studies together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that... Uh, you who wrote these words, inspired these words through holy men who were carried along by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe all that we find here of Christ and the narrow way of salvation that he teaches us about. Oh Lord, give us belief and repentance and save us as your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now as we have been doing, I want to ask that you would stand as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Here now God's Word as we find it in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaches, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. 
And you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. While growing up uh, in the 80s, I amassed a collection of those tiny cars called micro-machines. And if you were a child then, or if you had children then, you probably uh, remember the commercials more than you remember the toys themselves. The commercials all featured uh, an actor by the name of John Machida. John Machida was a one-time record holder for the world's fastest talker. Uh, and uh, John Machida's top speed clocks in at just over 11 intelligible words per second. Uh, in, uh, in TV commercials, he tended to speak at a rate of about five to seven words per second. And so if you needed a fast talker in the 80s or the 90s, you called John Machida. Today, it's much simpler. Advertisers use software, and they can speed up any actor's voice, which is how Almost every ad, every company that you hear advertising, whatever it is uh, they get, uh, they've got about 20 seconds of disclaimers scrunched into the final two seconds of every single commercial, and you know the routine. Uh, no purchase necessary. Offer valid for a limited time only, not available in all areas. Term subject to change without notice. Please see the store for complete rules and details. And the lawyers have told the companies that they need to put that sort of thing in there, but nobody actually wants to hear it. And so they've figured out how to speed it up and throw it there at the end. And we've all gotten used to legalese at lightning speed. Well, isn't it refreshing that as Jesus journeys toward Jerusalem, as he, as he teaches and proclaims the kingdom of God, isn't it refreshing that he is not hiding the terms of salvation at the end of some smooth sales pitch? Jesus never tries to convince his people that discipleship actually is going to be much easier than you think it might be. Jesus never downplays the necessity of striving in faith toward the promises of the gospel. Jesus refuses to allow us to believe that pluralistic lie that says actually salvation is broad. It's wide open to everyone, no matter what religion, no matter what philosophy, no matter what system you might follow, it's open and it's there for everybody. Well, there are terms and there are conditions to God's offer of salvation, and Jesus makes sure that we know what they are right there up front, right there in big, bold letters. And the disclaimer of the gospel is this, that God's offer of salvation is open, but it's only open to those who trust in Jesus. Apart from that, there is no salvation. Apart from that, many will fail to enter the kingdom of God. Apart from that, many will find out too late that they were trusting in something that could not help them. God's door of salvation is open, but it's only open 
for those who trust in Jesus. There are a few more disclaimers that go along with that main disclaimer here in these verses. Three, I think. Three I want to pull out at least. The first disclaimer that we find is that salvation is a thing that must be personal. Salvation must be personal. Our passage begins with a question. Verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Luke doesn't tell us who asked the question. He doesn't tell us why he wanted the answer. simply tells what happens, that Jesus was uh, was given this, this theological, theoretical inquiry. It's a question about salvation, but it's asked from a pretty safe, speculative distance. This kind of question that, that always captures human minds. People love to think and to talk and, and to debate about, about this life and maybe a life to come, maybe salvation, if there is such a thing. And if there is, well, who gets it? And, and how do you get in? And, and who all will be there? And what does it all mean? And we like to debate those sorts of things. Is it, is it open to everybody? Is it only for a few? And so we don't know the, the heart of the person who asked the questions, but we know some of the human motivations we might have for asking the same question. Most scholars actually think that this question uh, came out of, of, a, of a pride in the questioner, motivated by a spiritual pride. The thing is, the Jews actually already had a pretty well-accepted answer to just this question. They knew who was going to be saved. Their answer was that essentially all Jews will be saved and essentially all Gentiles will be condemned. There are some exceptions. There were Jewish apostates. There were notorious sinners who would be kept out of God's people. And there were some Gentiles, people like Ruth, people like Rahab, who, who sought after the God of Israel, and they would be brought in. But for the most part, the lines were drawn. The issue was settled. And some people think this was a question just to hear from Jesus' lips what everybody already knew and believed. It was a way to make the people feel good about salvation, to make them feel self-assured. It was a safe way to think about salvation, full of spiritual pride, maybe. Others think the question came out of fear. Fear, perhaps, from the disciples, because here you have Jesus traveling about, proclaiming this message of salvation. You can be reconciled with God. You can have everlasting life. All you have to do is come and receive it and believe in it. Here he is preaching peace with God, and yet so few people seem to really catch what he's on about. There are lots of people that like to hear his sermons. There are lots of people that love to, to watch his miracles. They love to eat the bread he provides in the wilderness. But the lasting effect of the ministry seems uncomfortably small. Most of the places that Jesus went, he was rejected. And maybe as the disciples watch, they, they have this difficulty reconciling what it is they expect about the Messiah and his reign and his coming into Israel and what they're actually seeing. And perhaps they're fearful. John Calvin says the same thing happens to us. We face the same difficulties. He says that watching Jesus' ministry, it might appear that only a small band of men was to be saved. That the whole church was headed for ruin. And a similar doubt steals upon us, he writes, when we look at the depressing condition of the world. Aren't we sometimes fearful when we look around at the world and we think the church seems so small? Will those who are saved be few? It's a question that comes out of doubt or fear or maybe of pride. It might just have been 
Speculation for the sake of speculation. This is the way that questions like this are asked in our day and age. We call it agnosticism. The fact that you cannot know anything for sure, that nothing about God, nothing about salvation can be proven with any certainty, and so until I can arrive at my own concrete conclusions, I'm happy just to, uh, to play with the ideas. Do a little bit of theological spitballing, see what sticks, just sort, of, uh, just sort of go this way and maybe go that way, and maybe it's this, and who knows, maybe it's that. And speculation uh, really affords an, an intellectual defense, we think, against the implications of the gospel. That's why we do it. It keeps it at arm's length. So it doesn't have to come near, so we don't have to answer to what it demands of us. And so we throw up our objections. People say, well, I can't believe in Jesus until I know what's going to happen with all those tribes in the Amazon who've never heard of him. You can't expect me to believe in somebody like that that doesn't have a plan, hasn't told us what he's going to do. Are, are, are those who are saved going to be few or are they going to be many? How broad is the way? Now you answer that question, then maybe I'll think about what you're claiming. And so, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Maybe it's, maybe it's speculation. And Jesus doesn't deal with theological speculation. Take a look at verse 24. He said to them, strive. That's Jesus' answer. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Not exactly, not the way it was asked. This question wants, wants to know about salvation generally. Jesus wants to talk about salvation personally. The question wonders how few are going to be saved. Jesus wants to talk about how many are going to be lost. The question wants to know how broad is the way that leads to life, and Jesus answers unmistakably that the door to salvation is narrow. And so he answers this question with a command. Strive, he says. Struggle, he says. Press forward, he says. Strive to enter the narrow door. Push and squeeze and sweat to get in. Break a rib to squeeze through the small opening if you have to. It doesn't matter what it might cost you to get inside because there is only one safety. There is only one narrow door and only those who get through that narrow door will be saved. And everyone else will be lost. Strive is a pretty good New Testament word. The Greek, you'll be very impressed. The Greek is agonizomai. You can hear a word there. It's where we get our English word agonize. This is a word that Paul often used to describe the Christian life. He wrote to Titus. He said, I have fought the good fight. He says, I have agonized over this. I fought. I've agonized the good fight. Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, uh, that he struggles, he strives, he agonizes with all God's energy that he powerfully works within him. Striving is a word that lets us know that salvation requires something from us. It requires a response that is more than speculation. In order to partake of salvation, we've got to press into God's narrow way. Salvation requires striving. That doesn't mean that we are saved by our own efforts. John chapter 6, Jesus was teaching a different crowd, and he told the crowd there uh, that people ought to work for the food that endures to eternal life. 
their response was another question. Well, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God, they asked. In other words, what does it look like to strive towards salvation? What kind of effort do we need? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's what it means to strive for the narrow door. It means pressing forward in faith in Jesus Christ. It means abandoning every other way that people try to save themselves. It means believing him and his gospel promises more than you believe how impressive or how unimpressive his kingdom may look in the world. And folks, faith like that is pretty difficult. To walk by what God says and not by what your eyes see. Faith like that is pretty difficult. It's also pretty personal. Faith in Jesus is not something composed of merely knowing good theology, merely engaging in intellectual acrobatics. Faith in Christ is a personal response. And that means that the best question about salvation is not how many or how few might be saved. The question is, will I be saved? Have I believed? Have you pressed into that narrow way? Are you striving to trust him? Have you entered God's narrow door by faith? According to Jesus, salvation must be personal. We also find that salvation will be limited. Salvation will be limited. Here's the teaching that our unbelieving world finds most unsavory about the Christian gospel. The idea that actually there is such a thing as a heaven and a hell. The idea that there is such a thing as death and judgment. The idea that at the last day there will be some, actually Jesus' word is many, there will be many who will be cast out of God's presence. Will be cast into a place of eternal conscious torment. A place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Look at it, verse 28, Jesus says, in that place, there will be sorrow and rage. That's what it means. There will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth. That means that men and women in hell will know that they are in hell. They will know what they have lost. They will be filled with sorrow over the loss of their souls for eternity. They will weep over their love of sin that kept them from coming to Christ. They will weep over the narrow door that they refused to enter by faith, over the unbearable guilt of their sin. And in their sorrow, they will be enraged at God and at his justice. They'll shake their fist at him. They will clench their teeth against him. Even in hell, sinners will hate God's holiness. And it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle. Sometimes people say, I can't believe that God would consign sinners to an eternal torment. How unjust. But here's what happens. There is weeping. There is gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place where perpetual sin incurs perpetual judgment. It's not a place where sinners and, and the damned slip quietly into the silence of night. They're in hell and they know what they've lost and they hate God for it. And they curse him. And they gnash their teeth at him. And our pluralistic culture despises the idea that anybody at all should receive punishment due to us for sin. It hates the idea. 
salvation is narrow rather than broad, that salvation is limited rather than universal, and yet that is the uncontested, very clear, unmistakable teaching of Scripture. In fact, Jesus makes a claim here that I bet many Christians are even uncomfortable with. Do you hear what he says? Verse 24, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There are some who will seek salvation and yet who are cast out into eternal darkness. Now we need to be careful because Christ doesn't contradict himself. He said just two chapters ago, chapter 11, in teaching on prayer, he told his people to ask, to seek, to knock. Because when you ask, it will be given. When you seek, you shall find. When you knock, it shall be opened. And now he says there are some who seek, it's the same word, and they will not enter in. Salvation is limited. What are the limitations? What is Jesus talking about? Why will they be cast away from God's presence? Well, for one, many people will be kept from salvation because they sought the Lord too late. Notice in verse 25 the words when and then. This is temporal language, time language. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then. When the door has closed and you are still trying to get in, then the master will say to you, he will answer to you, I do not know where you're coming from. God's salvation is offered for a limited time only. There is a day coming when the narrow door is closed. And the judgment will begin, and it may happen when Christ comes again, as he told us he will. It may happen at the end of your life, but be convinced that it will happen. The door will shut, and once the door is shut, it will not be opened. And many will be lost in the day of judgment because they thought that there was always more time. There's more time to pray for salvation. There's always more time to put off my sin. There's always more time to trust in Jesus. It is the procrastination, the dangerous procrastination that haunts us at every stage of our life. When you're a child, you think, I've got to be older to deal with my soul. When you're a teenager, you think, I'll take that seriously when I'm an adult. When you're an adult, you think, I'll wait until I've got kids and maybe I'll decide what I'm going to teach them. When you've got kids, you decide, maybe I'll wait until the kids are gone. And you can keep on going. You can keep on going. We are naturally convinced that salvation is something we can always seek tomorrow. But there is coming a day when every tomorrow will become an eternal today. And the salvation that many put off for the future will forever be in the past. J.C. Ryle said that myriads will wake up in another world and they will be convinced of truths they refuse to believe on earth because hell itself is nothing but truth known too late. Many will be kept out because they sought the Lord too late. Many will be kept from salvation because they sought the Lord without faith. Verse 26, Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. There are two important truths you need to understand in that verse. The first one is that the master of the house who closes the door is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who taught in their streets. He's the one who shared space and 
in a dining table with unbelievers. He's the one that when rejected will be the one who rejects those who rejected him. He's the master that will close the door on the day of judgment. Secondly, you need to see that familiarity with Jesus is not a substitute for faith in Jesus. At the last day, there will be many who never placed their faith in Jesus because they convinced themselves it would be enough just to know something about him. Just to be kind of close to him. Just to have a relationship of proximity, a relationship of familiarity, just to get to breathe in the same space close enough that he could give you COVID if it was around. That's enough, isn't it? Isn't that how we catch salvation? Just by being close. And so during the days of Jesus' ministry, it was people in, in towns like Capernaum and Bethsaida, the ones that he denounced, the places where they were so proud that the prophet walked among them. In Jesus' day, it was, it was the people like the Pharisees who invited Jesus for dinner parties, and they, they hosted him, and they invited prominent people to come and see this Jesus that everybody's talking about. But when he called them to faith, they demurred. When he spoke truth in their hearing, they turned up their nose. Oh, that's enough just to share a meal. I don't need to go any further. In our day, it's the people who taste religion like they taste wine at fancy parties. They'll swirl it in the glass. They'll line them all out. They'll compare the different systems. They'll sniff the different doctrines. They'll see how they compare with one another. Get the aroma uh, of this over here and the aroma of that over there. And even from time to time, they'll take a little sip just to see what the gospel tastes like, but they will always spit it out. They will not take it in. They will not allow it to change them. They will not come in faith. They'll get close. They'll hear a little bit. They'll experience a little bit, but no further than that. Or maybe worse. In our day, it's the well-behaved young man who grows up in a well-behaved family, in a well-behaved church, where nobody ever took the time to take him aside and challenge him to choose this day whom you will serve. It's a young woman who thought it was enough just to be baptized. Just to say the right words. That's what your family expects of you, right? They expect you to show up in church. They expect you to hear a few sermons. They expect you to, to look in the general direction of the pastor while he's speaking, and you can fill your mind with all sorts of distractions and all sorts of amusements and all sorts of mundane things that cloud out the gospel until, until it's too late. And at the last day, many will say to Jesus, but we heard you, but we saw you. We knew a few things about you. They will plead their proximity to Jesus, but there is no such thing as salvation by proximity. There is no such thing as salvation by familiarity. And to the seekers who knock too late, and to those who knock without faith, faith Jesus will give the same reply. I don't even know where you come from. In other words, you are a complete outsider. You have no connection to me. I don't know you. You have no claim on me. There's no reason why I should open to you. There's no connection. And all those who are disconnected from Christ, the door will remain closed and the Lord will send them away. Christ wants us to know the terms and the conditions of salvation. And so he tells us right up front, he, he tells us, that salvation will be limited. He tells us that salvation must be personal. 
praise the Lord, he also promises that salvation is going to be surprising. It's going to be surprising. In the closing verses, Jesus teaches us that part of the misery of hell, if you can imagine it, part of the misery of hell is that the people who are in hell will be close enough to heaven to see what's happening there. And the light of God's presence and the warmth of his glory is going to be forever out of reach, just beyond them. But they're going to see what's happening there. They're going to see what's going on. And what will be visible, even to those outside, is that heaven's going to be full of the most surprising citizens ever imaginable. It's not going to be full of the outwardly impressive, the religiously astute. Heaven's not going to be full of the speculative, philosophical scholars and all their New York Times bestsellers. It's not going to be full of powerful people born into the right families, raised on presumptive religious privilege. Heaven's going to be full of the ones the world counted last. It's going to be full of the outcasts. It's going to be full of the downtrodden and the martyrs, persecuted minorities, the women in Saudi Arabia who can't even tell their husbands that they believed in Jesus for fear of their lives. Heaven's going to be full of the prophets who were mocked and stoned and sawn in two. It's going to be full of obscure, faithful saints of whom the world was not worthy. But here's the beautiful thing. It's going to be full. It's going to be full. I said earlier that Jesus didn't directly answer the question in verse 23. Not entirely, right? Because, because the question was about how few might be saved. And so far, Jesus has been teaching us about how many are going to be lost. But at the end, he answers the question, and it has this, this, this unexpected glory about it. He tells us, as those who are cast out look upon the, the kingdom, they're going to look and see people come from east and west, from north and south, and they're going to recline at table in the kingdom of God. They're going to witness from afar, even beyond the padlocked gates of glory, they're going to see the scene that John describes in Revelation chapter 7, Beginning in verse 9, John writes that after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of worship. Splendor and unimaginable joy in the presence of the Lord. Phil Riken tells us that the reason Jesus has pointed out that the door is narrow is not to keep us out, but so that we would find our way through. These verses are filled with terrible warnings about the reality of hell. But they were spoken by the Savior who opened the way to walk through God's narrow door. Christ in his flesh paid the penalty of guilt that sinners owe. And Christ in his mercy has made a way to go to God through faith. Christ himself is the door of the sheep, he tells us in John. Those who enter by him will be saved. Saved. Not cast out, but brought in. Not rejected, but embraced. Not condemned, but justified, forgiven, glorified in God's presence. Christ is the narrow door, and those who enter by him 
to be saved. That means that now is the time of salvation. Today is the day of decision. When Scripture tells us in several places to seek the Lord while he may be found, it tells us in other places that every day, as long as today is called today, we ought to encourage one another to build one another up toward this faith that we've been called to, to strive to enter the narrow door. And that means that believers, those of you who have already entered through the narrow door, this message is for you too. Keep on striving for the upward call of Christ Jesus. Keep on struggling with all the power that God works within you. Keep pressing forward, walking by faith, not by sight. Keep pressing forward to that narrow door. This message is also for those who might still be outside. Give yourself no rest until you are reconciled to God. Strive with the Lord in prayer and ask Him for true repentance. Pray that the Lord will work faith in your heart and unite you to Christ. Trust in the Lord while there's breath in your lungs, while the door is still open. Today, if you hear His voice, do not Harden your heart. Because many on the last day will be kept out because they sought the Lord too late. Because they sought the Lord without faith. But God's door of salvation is open to all those who trust in Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, our gracious God, we thank you that you have called us and made us your people. There may be some here who have not yet put their faith in you. There may be some watching or listening who have not yet put their faith in you. Oh, Lord, if it's so, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that you would trouble their consciences. We pray that they would not be allowed to sleep tonight because they're thinking of the things that they've heard, not just the horror story about hell, but the entrance of Christ into the world to save lost sinners to himself. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would call all of your people. May they be part of our number. May you do a work among us. May you convert sinners to yourself. Call our young people. Call our children to yourself. Give them faith and life in you. Give them faith and repentance and save them, we pray. And keep your people pressing forward as you, by your spirit, enable us and work within us. Oh, Lord, keep us pressing forward in faith in Jesus Christ working for the fruit and the food that, that endures forever. Oh Lord, we thank you for being the door of the sheep. Help us to trust and to enter by you and be safe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.